Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Ria Mehta, and this week, Inika Kuristane, Juliana Davis, Olivia Becker, and I spoke with Barbara McQuaid, a professor of law at the University of Michigan, and a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. McQuaid previously served at the United States Attorney, the first woman to serve in the role in the region for the Eastern District of Michigan from 2010 to 2017, taking on challenges like public corruption, terrorism, cybersecurity, and health fraud. As part of President Trump's 2017 dismissal of U.S. attorneys, she stepped down in March of 2017. We had a wide-ranging conversation about what constitutes unlawful versus unreasonable, the danger of making facile comparisons that minimize historic suffering, how providing more information can be a strategic way to deal with disinformation, and the best practices and the lack thereof in political communication. Thanks for joining us. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane. I'm a sophomore from New Jersey, and I'm especially interested in journalism and how that's really playing into the pandemic that's going on right now. Hi, I'm Juliana Davis. I'm from Manhattan in New York City. I'm a high school senior and a former lead fellow for Next Generation Politics, and I'm really interested in talking about how the current pandemic has changed the political landscape both in the United States and globally. Hi, my name is Olivia Becker. I am from New York City, and I'm a rising senior as well as Next Generation Politics Director of Outreach and Engagement. I'm just fascinated by your personal story and and what's going on in the past five years of your life beyond the headlines we see in the media. Hi, my name is Ria. I'm a rising freshman at Tufts University, and I'm interested in bipartisanship and how we can foster civic dialogue to really address, I think, the implications of the current administration and how the public has dealt with that. Well, my name is Barbara McQuaid. I started off in journalism. I worked as a sports writer in Rochester, New York. It was my first job out of college. And then I went to law school, uh, worked in as a law clerk for my first job out of law school, and then worked in private practice for five years before becoming a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit. And then during the Obama administration, I was appointed to serve as the U.S. Attorney there. I left at the end of the Obama administration and became a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, where I went to law school. And in that capacity, I've also had a chance to do some legal commentary on NBC News and MSNBC and to write some op-ed pieces. And so I consider it an extension of public service to try to help people understand how to make sense of the world. In the past few years, during the Trump administration, I've perceived quite a large shift in terms of how each branch holds power. And I think a hallmark of this is Trump appointed close to 200 young judges that will, you know, shape America and shape the future of our political landscape. And a lot of these judges have been deemed unqualified, you know, through various criteria. And something I just have always held concern for is how our legal system is set up to put a check on that, right? How much um, weight does the American Bar Association's ratings hold, right? And how can we put a check on that to make sure that the judges that are, you know, being put in, regardless of political ideology, are qualified? Yeah, so federal judges serve for life. It's a really important position. I practice before federal judges. And the reason we have them serve for life is so that they can feel free to make decisions that might be politically unpopular, but they don't have to ever worry about reelection or getting a new job. Uh, They're going to be there no matter what happens. And so 
that's a healthy part of the system. But the check that we have is that it, the president nominates the judges and then the Senate confirms and it's the advice and consent of the Senate. They're supposed to help recommend who these candidates are and then they're supposed to either reject or confirm them. And one of the challenges we have going right now is under the leadership of Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate Majority Leader, he has made the approval of Republican judges to be one of his very top priorities. And this began even before President Trump was in power, even during the Obama administration, who worked very hard to prevent judges from filling those seats. One of the reasons there are so many vacancies for President Trump to fill is that Mitch McConnell worked very hard to avoid confirming judges in the Obama administration. You may remember one very famous instance was on the Supreme Court where Justice Scalia passed away in February of 2016. And President Obama quite promptly nominated Merrick Garland, a very respected judge on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, kind of one step lower than the Supreme Court. And Mitch McConnell said that it was too close to an election to confirm a justice for the Supreme Court. We needed to let the people decide uh, who the president would be so they could pick, uh, that president could pick the next Supreme Court justice. And so in that way, President Trump got to hold those cards. So in this way, the system has really become skewed uh, because of the power that Mitch McConnell has held and the way he has wielded it. We have seen, I think, an instance of rather than having duty to their institution, we're seeing people having a greater duty to their party. And I think that is to the detriment of the United States. And so what is one way we can fight back? Well, we could insist that although presidents get to choose their picks of who gets in, that we put pressure on our senators to confirm only judges who are deemed qualified by the ABA or other legal organizations. That would be one way to check uh, that power or to insist that your own senators, if you have senators who are voting uh, to confirm these judges, um, put pressure on those senators not to confirm judges who lack the qualifications to serve. So just uh, some of those things, but a really important dynamic that we see going on right now. Multiple times, President Trump has tweeted about how he will just make states open from like his personal Twitter account, not from like the official Twitter account. And obviously that violates federalism. But are there any specific checks and balances that you could discuss for the listeners about how the Senate or Congress could check his power in terms of like forcing all of the states to open when they're not ready? Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, traditionally, Republicans have been big advocates of federalism, which says that we respect states' rights to do certain things. The federal government and Congress only can act where it has enumerated powers specified in the Constitution, and all other powers are reserved for the states. And that includes things like the police powers that you mentioned, Juliana, like these stay-at-home orders and other things. Those are very much within the province of states, and so it is governors who make those decisions. And so I think President Trump likes to uh, brag as if he has those rights. He may even incorrectly believe he does, but he does not have those powers. Those belong to the states. But I do think that he has the bully pulpit there and can be very persuasive in sending messages to governors about when it is and is it time to open up. And that's where a responsible leader, I think, uh, could be coordinating that effort, could be encouraging governors to issue stay-at-home orders. I know the governor of Florida waited a very long time before issuing a stay-at-home order because President Trump was urging him not to. And so it's it's in that role as the bully pulpit, I think, where he could be issuing more responsible 
messages. And who can send that? You know, I think members of his own party within Congress could be suggesting to him that a more effective leadership strategy would be one to keep people safe. But he seems to disagree. And as president, that's his prerogative to say what he thinks is right. He seems more swayed by economic indicators than he is by health and safety indicators. But it's the governors who are going to make these decisions, and he doesn't have that power. I think his bluster there, though, creates confusion in the American public, which violates some of the best practices in terms of crisis communication about being clear and being accurate. When could the actions of the state and governors become unlawful, hypothetically speaking? Yes. So every state's a little bit different in terms of what their constitution says and what their state laws say. But then, of course, all of them are backstopped by the federal constitution. So even if a state were in compliance with its own laws, it could violate the constitution if it, say, violated the First Amendment about the right to peaceably peaceably assemble. We have rights to petition our government for redress. There is an interstate right to travel. All of these rights, though, do come along with that reasonable limitations. And so there's a case out of Massachusetts from 1905 where there was a smallpox outbreak and the state said that everybody had to get vaccinated to protect the health of others. And someone challenged that. And that case law really is still good law today. And many people look to that for guidance. And, and what it says is these constitutional rights are not absolute. So long as the state acts reasonably and takes measures that are necessary, then they're going to get a lot of deference from the courts. And so if a governor were to say, I've looked at the data I've looked at the infection rate, and I believe that we need to stay in lockdown for you know another two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. Some of the things that the court would look at there to determine whether it is in fact reasonable is the duration of the order. Uh, here in Michigan, our order will extend for another two weeks or so, and the data you know seems to support that. I can't imagine that a judge would overturn that. But if our governor would instead say we're going to stay locked down for two years, then I think people could say that's unreasonable because. We don't know what the data is going to look like even a few months from now. Or uh, there are exceptions. You can still demonstrate if you want to. You can go and wear a mask and socially distance and go to the state capitol. And so if she were to say you can't do even that, you can't have any messages, you can't have a car parade for a protest, you know, that could be unreasonable. And so those are the tests. And they're a little bit fuzzy. They are because it uses the word like reasonable, it will sometimes require judges to look at it. But ordinarily, they're going to defer to states as long as they believe they're acting uh, to control a crisis. That's a fascinating dichotomy that I don't think I had thought of before and we don't read enough about, which is unlawful versus unreasonable. And how sometimes, I think particularly in the fluffiness or iffiness of this administration, just in, in the 24-hour news cycle, how we can conflate the two. Yeah, and I frequently hear people say, you know, here in Michigan, there, there have been some small protests something like 76% of the public supports the governor's orders, but there is a small minority who's been very vocal. And one of the things you'll hear them say frequently is, this is a violation of my constitutional rights. And I think they fail to recognize that although we do have constitutional rights and they are not suspended in time of crisis, there are always reasonable restrictions on them, just like the right of free speech. You know, there's always the old adage, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You can't say things that are defamatory. You can't threaten someone. So there are reasonable restrictions on all of our constitutional rights. When you hear the statement, this is a violation of my civil rights, like what what is your opinion? Would like and you'll see people um, comparing themselves here in Michigan, at least to you know Rosa Parks, who was a civil rights pioneer who fought for the right to be able to sit on the front of the bus and have a seat and not take a stand. And instead, I think when people make those statements, they are really minimizing their own discomfort because the things they're protesting for is uh, you know they'll say I want to get a haircut 
or I want to be able to play golf. It's very different from the rights that our civil rights pioneers were fighting for. And I understand people are really hurting who are not able to go to work, but there are also people who want to be safe about going to work and employers who want to keep their customers and their employees safe. So these are all very difficult issues for the governor to sort through. But, you know, no doubt governors want to be reelected and a thriving economy is a big indicator of whether they will be reelected. So, you know, the idea that governors are deliberately uh, oppressing their state's economies uh, really seems nonsensical to me. I think that we may all have our own opinion about what is the right level of openness or lockdown during times of a pandemic. But, uh, you know, I think that most of these governors are doing their best to get it right based on imperfect data. I've also seen the term democratic slave state thrown around on social media, which seems very disrespectful to like the history of slavery in this country. I just think that the way people have reacted to this is in terms of not the rights they think they have, but how they think the two are analogous is really interesting. Yeah. And that is such an interesting point, I think, uh, at many levels. I mean, one is I think that sometimes on social media and cable news, people try to say outrageous things to get noticed. And so using a term like that, you'll hear modern day lynching, the Holocaust, comparisons to Hitler and Nazi Germany, Confederate flag, all of these kinds of things that people know will touch a nerve. But I agree with you that I think it really minimizes the tragedy of those other events in history to say my suffering during a shutdown is equal to the suffering of enslaved people during slavery. Those are just not moral equivalents. There is also the presence, I, I know that we've learned from the indictment that Robert Mueller filed against Russian disinformation campaigns, where there are people who will deliberately use that kind of polarizing language to drive wedges between people in the United States. Some are Russians and some are Americans who are using that same tactic. They refer to it as active measures or reflex messaging. The messages are intended to incite a very negative emotional response in the person who hears it in an effort to stir things up. I, I always think that effective leaders bring calm to chaos. And instead, I think we have a leader and others who follow him who do just the opposite of trying to stir up controversy, which I don't think is healthy. Where do you draw the line between political strategizing and intentionally spreading misinformation? And, you know, another question I had is, what is the check for that? I know that lawsuits have been filed, but it does take years, I'm sure. But how can the public or, you know, his political non-allies use the legal sphere to kind of counter the misinformation that he has spread? One of the things President Trump does is he knows how to use public statements to make statements that come very, very close to the line, but do not cross the line into defamation. People can be sued for defamation if they say something false about you that can be damaging to your reputation. But if the person you're talking about is a public official or a public figure, then the standard is very high. You have to show that the person who made the statements acted with actual malice. That is, that they knew that the statement was false or that they acted with reckless disregard as to falsity. And that could be very difficult to prove about what a person did or did not know at the time they made a statement. Many people can just say, well, I read it and I thought it was true. And so I was just repeating what I heard. You'll also notice that very often when President Trump makes these allegations, say with regard to Joe Scarborough, and for those who don't know, the story is that a member of his staff, a 28-year woman, had a heart attack, uh, died, fell and hit her head and, and died in his office. At the time, Scarborough was in Washington, D.C., and he had announced about a month earlier he was re retiring from Congress. President Trump, this happened in 2011. President Trump has recently been tweeting a lot of messages about this to say, very mysterious circumstances, maybe somebody ought to look into that. And he'll use a lot of question marks in, uh, around these messages. And so 
they'll just say, you know, I'm not saying it's true or it's not true. I'm just saying there, there are a lot of questions there. And that's just enough to get people talking about it and asking about it and believing it to be true. And so likely not lose a defamation lawsuit there, but I think he very carefully knows exactly what he's doing to smear Joe Scarborough without inviting a lawsuit. And so I think the, the only way you can respond there is one, we saw that Twitter the other day posted a notice regarding his statements about the potential for voting by mail to expose itself to fraud. They, they did a fact check and said, here, to read accurate information about voting by mail, click, click here. And he got very upset about that. So one is fact checking and calling them out when people make these false statements. And so more information is often the best way to deal with disinformation. In 2017, you stepped down as, as part of his grand dismissal of U.S. attorneys. I just wanted to know more about what that experience was like, what you had heard about before, or was it pretty abrupt on Trump's end, um, and how that has kind of informed how you view the current administration over the past three years. It is typical that when a new president takes office that he replaces U.S. attorneys. Typically, it is done in a, a thoughtful way over a, a period of time. Two days before that dismissal, in March of 2017, all of the U.S. attorneys had participated in a phone call with Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who had said that for now, we'd like you to stay on and um, you know, you'll be replaced over time. It typically can take up to a year for all of the U.S. attorneys to be replaced, but they said, you know, for an orderly transfer of power, you know, we'd ask you that you stick around until your successor is named, which sounded fine. No successor was in sight in my district, and I was in the midst of a lot of very important cases, and so I planned to stay uh, for a while, but I had taken a job with the University of Michigan and planned to leave you know, so, some months down the road. But then very suddenly and abruptly, two days later, first we got an email and then we got press inquiries that we had all been dismissed, emails from, from the press, not from DOJ. And then several hours later, official notification that we were being asked to resign. And the messaging, you know, not very clear, uh, not clear as to the effective date, ultimately told effective immediately. I called someone at, Justice, at, at Department of Justice I knew and said, you know, would anyone mind if I just spent the next two weeks winding down? Because I've got a lot of important work to do. And he said, well, you won't get paid, but sure, you can do that. So I did. But what that said to me is, I, I still don't know why there was that abrupt change. Clearly, the attorney general did not know about it two days prior because uh, it was inconsistent with what he had said. And although we all expected to leave, the abrupt nature of the departure, I thought, suggested an impulsiveness and a lack of regard for the work of the offices. I had to very quickly transition a lot of things I was working on to colleagues in the office, and it would have been much better to have uh, time to do that. I know most of my colleagues left immediately. They heard, send in your resignation, they left that night. Uh, you know, I'd been there 19 years, and so I felt comfortable sticking around to try to wind things down, but that was not their intention. And, you know, this is not the best way to run good government. I think there was a suspicion that because we've been appointed by President Obama, there was some need to get us out of the way quickly. But, you know, I think most people who serve as U.S. attorneys don't think of themselves as political actors. They think of themselves as career professionals working for the Department of Justice. So, you know, I would say that that, to me, suggested that this uh, president didn't care so much about good government as he did making sure he had loyal people in positions. I feel like inconsistency, especially with information, has become almost characteristic of the Trump administration over time. In your opinion, how have you seen that sort of play out in the way information is distributed during this pandemic? And how do you think that's affecting polarization during this time? You know, communication is so important. There are rules, as we said, of crisis communication, at least in government. Be first, be, be right 
be clear, be consistent, and be compassionate, be respectful. I don't think we've heard any of those things from President Trump. And that's so important. I mean, it's a really hard time for everybody. And there are many things that the leader doesn't know. But, you know, President Trump seems like he's got the something new every day. First, it was, this will all go away at the end of April, maybe 15 people will die. And then it was, you know, certain drugs are going to be an effective cure. Talked about bleach and light at one point. And, you know, it seems that he has scientists there who he could rely upon to share information with people that could be effective. But I think that what happens over time is, at least with some segment of the population, you lose credibility. And people tend not to believe you or listen to you, which is not what you want as a leader. You want to have credibility. And so, uh, you know, if there's something you don't know, you say, we don't know yet what the death total will be. We're going to do all we can to reduce it. We know from science that what's best is if we can get testing, if we can use the Defense Production Act to make sure that we're manufacturing the right equipment for personal protective equipment and ventilators and all the things that we're going to need. And so, um, I don't know, some have suggested that President Trump's chaos is deliberate strategy to keep people off balance. But I don't know, it seems to me like it is just more of a blustery lead by impulse, lead by gut instinct, as opposed to a thoughtful, methodical strategy. So um, if you don't mind, would you, you know, try to discuss being a woman in politics and being a woman in like the legal sphere and how that's kind of maybe changed your work or like changed your perception of certain issues? You were the first woman to serve as the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan. And so maybe like how your experience was there, how, you know, would you give advice in terms of young people being more engaged with the legal sphere? Because those have everyday implications on our lives as well. My experience as a woman, I am very fortunate to stand on the shoulders of the women who fought so many battles for us not that much longer ago uh, than I came up through the system. You know, there are women in the 1970s who tell me stories of the horrible sexism that they encountered in the workplace, and they really paved the way for me and for us. And I had many opportunities that I know those women didn't have, but they broke a lot of those barriers so that those opportunities were there for me. I do think that that doesn't mean that sexism is gone. There is still plenty of it. There's certainly plenty of sexual harassment and sexual assault that goes on. But I'm very encouraged by the culture, I think, that we are seeing in most workplaces, including the judiciary, which had its own Me Too scandal. It seems like no industry was untouched by it for decades women kept their mouths shut because they feared that they would not be believed or would be retaliated against or things would be made worse if they told the truth, are now speaking up and telling the truth. And it really almost instantly causes these facades to crumble. So I think people are encouraged when they see other people speak out. There's still work to be done for women, but I think the only way that we change attitudes is by breaking down those barriers and doing those jobs, doing them effectively, so that when people see us in those roles, we don't seem like novelties. We're just another talented person uh, doing our best. Uh, you know, I think most people understand how foolish it is to disregard 50% of the talent in this country. Um, we have women who are talented in every uh, type of field and discipline. And so just because there have not been women in certain fields yet does not mean it's not going to happen. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon everywhere. You see it in the judiciary, many women judges. You're seeing it in Congress. You know, when I was young, there were two women in the Senate, and there's certainly far more today. And I am hopeful that the day will come very soon when we have a woman president. But we have women who are presidents of lots of other things, and our time is coming. So it's important that people like you continue to work to break down those barriers.
That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.